0: Thank you so much, Jessica and Melissa. It's a real pleasure to be here today and uh, to have been invited to be part of this wonderful lecture series. Um, I've been to a few myself, and I think it's a wonderful thing to do to really bring the community and um, the Penn State faculty together. So I'm very pleased to be here. My purpose today is to um, talk to you. Can everyone hear me, first of all? Excellent. The purpose is for me to talk to you about... um, early Baroque music and I want to ask you first of all um, what your thoughts are right now about Baroque music. When I say Baroque music who are the composers that might come to your mind? Bach, excellent. Geminiani? very good. Uh, Vivaldi, what was that? Pergolesi. Pergolesi, excellent. Vivaldi, okay. Now all the names you mentioned are composers from the later part of the Baroque period. Um, and when you think about the Baroque period in music, we're talking about 150 years that span from approximately 1600 to 1750. So it's a fairly extensive period and it's a period that goes through a lot of change, a lot of transition. So later Baroque music, the music of Vivaldi and Bach will sound quite different from the music of the earlier Baroque period. Um, but even more interesting is the fact that uh, the transition between the Renaissance uh, Renaissance music and Baroque music is a huge change, and. Um, that's what I would like to focus on today for this lecture. Uh, it's a huge change, and uh, so we'll be exploring together some of the reasons for that change and also, you know, how can we talk about the change? How can we describe what is happening in the music uh, that really produces that Uh, that change. I would like this to be a conversation. I do not want to be here just lecturing, so feel free at any point to raise your hand and ask a question, Um, and I will leave, however, some time at the very end for discussion as well. But feel free to just jump in as you wish. So let's begin briefly with Renaissance music. When you think about the Renaissance in music, um, this is the kind of sound that you might already be familiar with with that, the, the, the typical Renaissance sound is this one right here. Okay, so let's just talk about that sound for a, for a second. Um, how would you describe it? I'm not looking for fancy words here. Anything that comes to mind? Uh, melodic? Okay, what else? Huh? a variation. Okay, we could talk for a bit about that, but yes, uh, a lot of the religious music of the Renaissance is based on Gregorian chants, you're right. It's kind of an expansion of Gregorian chant in many ways. Um, The word uh, consonant maybe comes to mind, harmonious, uh, very controlled, uh, very, um, very smooth. I'm using kind of you know non-technical words here just to make, make sure we all understand. Um, so these are all features of Renaissance music. If you want one technical word that we can apply, it would be polyphonic. That means that you have multiple vocal lines, each one independent, and each one very carefully controlled with the others. And the technique of taking one vocal line and composing it together with another vocal line is called counterpoint. It's the art of putting notes against notes. Counterpoint. Uh, And that was a technique that was perfected uh, in the uh, 15th into the 16th centuries. Okay, so that is your typical Renaissance sound. Now let's go to a typical Baroque sound here for a second and you will see that uh, it is a I hope you will hear it's a big change Okay, so major change has occurred. That is Vivaldi around 1720, so we have jumped ahead. The question is, how do we go from point A, from the Renaissance sound, which is primarily a vocal sound, which is primarily a polyphonic sound, to that type of sound, where all the focus is really on the melody, right? So that is your attention is on the top of the register, on the top of the texture. Uh, you're not really worrying about what the other instruments are doing. All the attention is on those violins. Uh, so we go from this very well-balanced polyphonic texture where each vocal line is treated very much equally to a texture that has absolutely shifted to all the, all the attention being on the melody. Okay, so point A, point B. How do we go from... Yes, please. Uh,
1: the two selections that you chose were dramatically different in tempo. Is that the characteristic of the change from Renaissance to Baroque, or is that just... It's different?
0: another element as well. Now, there are certainly slow tempi in the Baroque period, but this rhythmic drive is very typical of later Baroque music. Uh, we're gonna be looking today, again, more closely uh, at uh, earlier Baroque music, early 17th century as opposed to mid 18th century. Uh, but I would say that the, the, the use of rhythm is something that is very much changing between the Renaissance and into the Baroque period. That rhythmic drive, that rhythmic urge is very much at the basis of this music. Yes.
1: Voice production may have changed too, whereas you're hearing you're hearing mostly male voices and uh, you've got very young uh, boys as the sopranos and uh, um, by by the eighteenth century you're
0: either hearing castrati or you're hearing something some a production mm-hmm. of voice which has more of a tremolo, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah. So sure, absolutely I mean there's you know I am uh, giving you kind of the, the basics today. We could talk a lot about some of the details like the one you just mentioned. Of course, those are all important elements, but yes, but there's certainly, there's many transformations, but we're focusing here on the big picture. Sally. No. <laughs> what, was the, what was the first election you played? The first election was a um, motet uh, by Pierre Delarue, who is a early 16th century Flemish composer. hmm Okay, Um, so let's think here for a second, uh, where does the shift first occur? Where can we start to first talk about where are the changes first happening between the Renaissance sound that we heard and where are some of the new ideas coming from? And the answer, believe me, it's not because I'm biased, Uh, the answer is Italy. (laughs) Um, uh, When you think about the shift between medieval and Renaissance, it's England, for example. When you think about the shift between uh, uh, Baroque and classical, it's very much Germany. So there are, you know, I'm not being biased here, but truly in the shift between the Renaissance and the Baroque, Italy is the center of a lot of these uh, changes that are taking place. Why would that possibly be? Any ideas, any thoughts about why... Huh?
1: A single
0: voice against the well no no but why Italy why is Italy such a center of change and transition in this period I'll give you a little bit of a, um, historical uh, perspective it has to do with the, uh, with the political structure of Italy in that period. Um, Italy, as many of you might know, was not unified until 1861. And uh, certainly in, in the Renaissance and certainly into the Baroque, it was still very much a city-state, a city-state, city where you had individual cities really serving as individual um, political entities. And you had a court system that allowed for Uh, patrons of music and art to attract great artists and great musicians to the courts. And there was also great competition among these various centers. So the Florentines and the Medici were in competition with, I don't know, the Milanese and the Sforza family and so on. Um, So you can really talk about music in Florence, music in Naples, music in Ferrara, music in Mantua, music in Milan as very much independent type of uh, settings for music in the uh, Renaissance and certainly into the Baroque period. So there was a great cultivation of the arts and a great cultivation of music. And uh, probably of all these cities, and again, I'm not biased. It seems like I am, but I'm truly really not. Uh, Florence, of all the Italian cities, was the one that at first had this great, great impact. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about a group of intellectuals that met in Florence uh, in the 1570s, 80s, and early 90s. Uh, and this group was called the Florentine Camerata. And they met for about 20 years uh, in uh, private gatherings to talk about the arts and the sciences and music. Uh, and because they were in a period where, after all, the Renaissance, is the moment of rebirth of, in many ways, the ancient world, uh, ancient ideals. So they were interested in going back and thinking about ancient Greek and Roman music. Uh, That was very much, very central to what they were thinking. And so they had a problem, however, which is that no ancient Greek and Roman music had survived, unlike art, there were lots of beautiful Greek and Roman artifacts, but no actual music had survived. But what they did was to go back and read Plato, read Aristotle, read Boethius, read all the ancient classics. Uh, and many of those authors talked extensively about music, and they discovered that it was all about the power of music. If and
1: Any ancient music survived
0: It was all lost
1: from any any part
0: of the world? Uh, Greek and Roman. Ancient, yes. Yes, yes. Nothing had survived. Uh, In the 19th century, they discovered a few fragments, and now we have a few fragments uh, that they found on tombstones and whatnot. But in the Renaissance and into the Baroque, there was absolutely no actual scores, if you will, no actual musical uh, notation from that uh, that was known to man. Uh, So they said, okay, this concept of the power of music is absolutely central to the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans. How can we try to go back to that um, aesthetic, to that concept in music? And they figured that, well, if we simplify the texture, if we go from, again, what had been this polyphonic, Renaissance texture that we heard in the very beginning today, if we simplify that and bring it down to just a single vocal line accompanied by one, two instruments, then all the attention will be on the vocal line, on the text, and that singer will be able to express human emotion much more effectively. So there's a radical change uh, that happens in texture, meaning we go from this polyphonic texture to a new texture that is known as monody, okay? And again, monody is is basically a single vocal line accompanied by this type of thing. You know, and then you can sing above just a bunch of very simple old chord. So the accompaniment is minimal and the vocal line is the center of the attention. So again, this idea of having the melody be the primary uh, component of music uh, and the text in vocal music becomes absolutely central.
2: So what's the the derivation of the polyphonic? It's not an
1: erosion of the early classic. Where did it come
0: from? The polyphonic tradition? Well, it comes uh, in some ways... uh, some gentleman before mentioned that it's in a sense, you know, going back to the Gregorian chant tradition, you have that as your foundation. Where Think about that, sorry? Where did that come from? <laughs> Acoustics. Well what I'm trying to say is you had
1: you had you had the Roman Empire apparently classical music. And then how did that suddenly so disappear from not only written but folk to some whole different kind of music of that had no basic relationship to, to, to
0: with the the folk tradition, you see, was uh, never written down. So you had a very lively folk tradition, but we have no evidence of it.
1: And did that folk tradition, I don't to overwork this point, but did that, was that, did that exist parallel to the classical Roman Greek music, do you think?
0: Well, I think back then it's difficult to make a distinction, such a marked distinction between the classical classical. Roman tradition and the folk tradition. You know, we just simply don't know enough about what that distinction was.
1: This is wondering whether it continued to evolve. Into mm-hmm. The, yeah. The Renaissance was an evolution from. It. Is it known whether the?
0: Let, let's not forget that you have the Middle Ages in between there. So there's a lot of a lot of wonderful things that happen in the Middle Ages that we can't talk about today. So you know, it's not that we go from the ancient world to the Renaissance world, but there is certainly an evolution of music. Uh, And in fact, the 12th century, the 13th century, the 14th century are extremely interesting from a musical perspective. They're not dark ages by any means. It's one of my big pet peeves that I always tell my students, never use the term dark ages. Haven't I told you that before? (laughs) In any of my classes, because I truly do not believe there is a dark age in music. Each century is interesting in a different sort of way. So the Florentine Camerata in Florence are talking about all of these ideas. Uh, A few of the members of the Florentine Camerata were musicians themselves. So they were taking the intellectual discussions and turning them into uh, into practical experiments, as it were. One of those musicians, composers, was a man by the name of Giulio Caccini. Um, and Giulio Caccini was a member of the Florentine Camerata, a great musician, a great composer, and he started to experiment with these ideas. He said, okay, I like this idea of simplifying the texture, of having all the attention on a vocal line and simply having a simple accompaniment that can support that vocal line. So Giulio Caccini started to write music exactly in that style. Uh, It was performed... Uh, uh, all through the years of the Florentine Camerata, and then eventually his collection of madrigals, because that's what they were, were published in the year 1602. And the title, I think, is quite significant. He gives the title Le Nuove Musique, the new musical pieces, very much underscoring the fact that he was uh, fully aware uh, that he was writing new music, that he was uh, really uh, in, um, at the forefront of a new musical style, as it were. So Le Nuove Musique, let me just uh, play for you a quick uh, um, excerpt of this. So again, very, relatively simple in musical style. Uh, The single vocal line accompanied by a harpsichord. I wish we had a harpsichord today, but we'll do with a piano later. Uh, And uh, something else that you notice is that the text is in uh, Italian, obviously. Um, And what you have, the composer really follows the natural rhythm of the Italian words. Dolcissimo sospirò, and you hear that in the music. It follows that rhythm. So, once again, this this concept of uh, music following the text becomes one of the most important elements of uh, Baroque music. Not only not only early Baroque music, but Baroque music in general. And think about this even today. I mean, most of the music we hear today whether it's folk or pop or rock or whatever, the music you hear on the radio tends to be monodic, right? Tends to be a single vocal line accompanied by instruments. So it's a revolution, if you will, in music that is very much present in our musical system today as well. Okay, um, let me continue just briefly here. So we talked about Caccini, Le Nuove Musique had a huge influence. Uh, and Caccini himself and a contemporary, Jacopo Peri, both Florentines, uh, took this concept a step further. They said, well, now that we have discovered that music, uh, that the main um, purpose of music should be that to affect the emotions, this Greek concept of the doctrine of ethos, now that we have really uh, underscore that fact we can take this a step further we can maybe create a kind of music that is dramatic in action so that we have a chance over the course of not just a brief 3 minute piece but over the course of a 20, 30, 40 minute piece to explore human emotion in a more nuanced more extensive kind of way so guess what genre I'm referring to here Opera, yes. So opera comes out of this tradition. And for those of you who are opera goers today, great, fantastic, but you should know that you know this idea of opera, this genre of opera, is very, mar- very much part of this tradition, of this early 17th century, I should say late 16th with the Florentine Camarata into the early 17th century. So these two composers, Caccini and Pedi, start to write dramatic music that is staged, uh, that follows dramatic action, that has characters, that has simple uh, stage design. Um, They're performed in Florence in around 1600. Both of these operas are very well received. Um, And that was wonderful. Now, let me take it a bit further here. Let's leave Florence for a little bit let's move up the peninsula to the city of Mantua, where another composer was uh, working in those years and was being um, employed by the, uh, by the court of the Duke of Mantua, the uh, Gonzaga family, and that was Claudio Monteverdi. Monteverdi. Uh, he was, the, as I said, court composer for the dukes, and uh, he was earlier in his career, mostly writing madrigals. That was his favorite genre. He was not really interested in opera yet. So he was working with madrigals. And let me give you a sense of the kind of madrigals that he was writing. Some of these madrigals were written earlier in his career and then published somewhat later in his career. Um, And this is one of my absolute favorite madrigals by Monteverdi. And there's something very striking that I want you to listen to and I think most of you will hear what is striking. this example all the time when I want to emphasize the point that I'm about to make. Okay, so what did you just hear there? You heard this beautiful chord, I'm being facetious here. That is ugly. That hurts, right? That is not a nice, pleasant, harmonious sound. And if that weren't enough, he says, ah, I'm still not happy do this. Terrible, horrible sound. Okay. So contemporaries of Monteverdi had a fit. They said, oh my gosh, we have a composer here who has no sense of what the rules of counterpoint are. He hasn't been trained well, obviously. Uh, his music should be banned. We shouldn't listen to it. We should not publish it. And there was this huge controversy, the so called Artusi Monteverdi controversy that emerged uh, in uh, about 1600 um, when Monteverdi was starting to compose some of these madrigals. Monteverdi says, Ah, uh-uh, I know what I'm doing. I have been trained. This is a conscious decision that I am making. Uh, and I want you, the listener, to feel pain at that point, because the word I am setting is the word pain. It's the word dolore. This is from the Eighth Book of Madrigals, the Lament of the Nymph. Uh, What you hear coming in just a bit later is this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful um, Lament of the Nymph, um, which is based on a ground base and here's the ground base all about expressing sorrow for the the loss of a lover. Uh, But what you heard in the recording is the introduction that these three male singers uh, have uh, before the nymph herself starts singing what I just played on the piano. Uh, And so Monterey is saying, I want you, the listener, to sympathize with the nymph, to feel her pain, and I'm going to do that by underscoring Physical oral pain. Um, Yes, please go ahead.
1: Uh, has not Gesualdo done something similar?
0: Yes. But Gesualdo sticks out like a sore thumb in music history. Gesualdo was mentally insane. I mean, no, he truly was. He, he killed his wife, he killed the wife's lover, he was imprisoned, he was not mentally stable. So, you know, uh, he's a very interesting case, but I think there were some psychological, emotional issues with Gesualdo. So, in a sense, he, he's somewhat a precursor to this. You are absolutely right, but I think it's not part of a evolution as much as someone who is just a wild creature. <laughs> Has uh, um, not directly but I mean they never had met but yes they, they, they were he was familiar with just Waldo's music but there's no evidence that that was necessarily a direct influence it's more really this aesthetic evolution that I've been talking about that had an influence on Monteverdi and after all, after all he was at the court of Mantua where you know, musicians were coming in and coming out, and there's no doubt that he had been hearing about the Florentines uh, experimenting with some of this new music and this concept of music having to have emotional power. That's all what it comes down to with Monteverdi. Okay, so 1607. Uh, the Duke of Mantua hears that in Florence in 1600, 1601, 1602, they were experimenting with this new genre of Uh, drama in music. Drama in musica is what they called it at first, not opera. And the Duke says to Monteverdi, you know, it would be really great if you could write a piece of that sort. I have a big party coming up uh, for the carnival season at my palace, and I would love to have you compose one of these works for the festivities surrounding the carnival season. Uh, Now, remember that we have a precursor to Monteverdi's attempt at opera, and that is Caccini and Peri's operas uh, based on the Orpheus myth. Um, his the operas were called Euridice, and here is the opening of Peri's Euridice. Okay, so I want you to just listen to this Peri's Euridice, the very opening of the opera, very very opening. okay how many of you are anxious to go out right after this and go by the city (laughs) it's not just you it's fine it's interesting it's you know but it's not super grabbing you don't think oh this is the first opera, one of the first operas ever written, so what? You think, ah, forget opera, I'm not interested. Um, okay, so that is the opening of um, Peri's opera from 1601, and 1602. Here is the beginning now of Monteverdi's opera, L'Orfeo, 1607, Mantua, uh, commissioned by the Duke. Uh, keep in mind there is competition here between... Mantua and Ferrara. The Duke is hoping to kind of outdo the Florentines. And so Monteverdi is a lot of pressure on Monteverdi to do something that is very new, very creative. Here is the opening of Monteverdi's Orfeo. Okay, so a very different effect. Would you agree uh, with what we heard earlier? And I always tell students, okay, you can think about you can think of the Pity and the Caccini, Euridici Euridici's <laughs> operas, as quasi-operas, but we're not quite there. You, but I would argue that L'Orfeo, Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, sixteen oh seven, is really the first. True masterpiece opera ever written in the entire history of music because it has all of the elements that we associate with opera. And what are those elements? First of all, it's a large work. It's about 90 minutes long. Pedi's and Caccini's operas were about 25, 30 minutes. So that too, the length is a factor. You have an orchestra of 40 instruments not just a little harpsichord there to accompany the voices, but an orchestra that is being used at different points. They're not always used. He doesn't always orchestrate for all 40 instruments, but he uses even the instruments in a dramatic sort of fashion. So that when he wants a dark sound, uh, because Orpheus is about to enter the underworld, then he'll use dark instruments instruments with a dark timbre. When he wants a bright sound, a kind of happy sound, he'll use a lot of recorders or a lot of trumpets. So he's using instruments uh, in a very dramatic sort of fashion as well. Uh, There are great differences between movements of the opera. You have something like you heard in the beginning, a fanfare, essentially, an instrumental fanfare, versus what we will be singing soon, which is very aria-like, Versus sections that are for chorus. So there's lots of different musical styles within the 90-minute opera that Monteverdi is exploring. And there is great dramatic action. Monteverdi, being the genius that he is, and again, it's not just my bias, uh, is extremely effective in character development uh, and in really trying to... um, to evolve the story in a dramatic action. You never feel that it's static. There's always something new, something interesting that is being introduced. So with that in mind, I would like to now call on Megan Curry, who is, as uh, was mentioned earlier, a senior uh, at Penn State who is majoring in vocal performance. And by the way, Megan has a recital coming up. UBBC Church in South Boroughs at 4 o'clock that day. So if you're interested, Megan would love to have a nice audience, I'm sure. Uh, You have a handout. And we are going to be singing... um, And I hope you all, I brought 50 copies, I'm not sure if you all have, okay. And if you don't have one right in front of you, maybe you can share with someone. Um, But what you have here is the text of what we will be singing. We're not going to do all five stanzas. We're just going to sing the first three of these stanzas. And I really want you to think about the text. Look at the translation and think about the meaning of this text and why is this text really important. Um, Okay. (laughs)
1: I <laughs> have
0: so much, Megan. Sure, that's fine. Thank you so much. Uh, Okay, so thinking of the text. Did anything strike you as really interesting in this text? How about the second stanza? I am music. I should have mentioned this is the prologue of the opera, as you have it on the handout. This is the first uh, musical, uh, first vocal scene of the opera. You heard the fans in the very beginning that's kind of to grab your attention and then the curtain opens and out walks musica the character of music herself and she sings i am music who in sweet accents can calm each troubled heart and now with noble anger now with love can kindle the most frigid minds what is that that is nothing more than the musical manifesto if you will of what the Florentines had been discussing uh, just a few years earlier. The, the fact that music has power. Music is here to change your minds, to have great effect on the listener. So it's a beautiful moment in music history, isn't it? This this, this, this celebration of the power of music. And what better way to do that than with the first opera, a genre that is devoted to the expression of human emotion. Okay, any questions about any of this? And I'm going to move on just one more point, and then we'll just open it up for discussion. Uh, The final point is um, I want to, um, we're going to perform for you another selection from LaFeo, and you have the text of that on the back here. This is the first time that uh, Orfeo, the character of Orfeo, walks on stage and sings. And it's a love song. Orfeo, if you know the myth of Orpheus, it's a tragedy, unfortunately. But this is still the happy moment in the opera when they, uh, Orfeo and Euridice are about... To get married, and they are singing about their love for one another. And this is what um, Orfeo sings as she is about to address uh, Euridice. So, focus on the lyricism on the beauty of the vocal line and on the simplicity of the accompaniment. Thank goodness, since I'm out of practice. Um, (laughs) So, and Marty Coyle is also a senior voice major at Penn State, um, and he also has a recital the same day as Megan, um, so easy to remember. It's April 20th uh, at 6 p.m. in Esber Recital Hall in the School of Music.
2: Those are your soul, spirit of
0: Heard uh, two selections somewhat different, but both I think characterized by the lyricism, the focus on the vocal line, the minimal accompaniment, and that, as we said, is really typical of early Baroque music and will remain typical of music as it uh, goes forward. Um, So we have a few minutes for discussion and questions, please. I have two
1: questions that I don't know if anybody knows the answer to about the classics. So the Greek plays had choruses. Yes. Were they polyphonic or monophonic? Is that known?
0: Uh, we don't know for sure, but we are assuming that they were. Um, there's speculation about that. Some think that it was polyphonic, and some think that it was monodic. And the Florentine Camerata came to the conclusion that, oh, it really probably was monotic, that you would have had this kind of, you know, again, the attention on the vocal line where the whole chorus is singing that vocal line accompanied by, um, you know, simple accompaniment.
1: My other question is, from drawings, paintings, or maybe actual artifacts of lyres and lutes, do they know what the tuning was or what the...
0: We like do know quite a bit about Greek music theory, and that's because we have lots of treatises, um, and it is very complex. <laughs> it is very technical, very complex. Uh, so, yes, we do know about tuning, we do know about modes, we know about hexachords, we know a lot of theoretical information. But how did the music actually sound? You know, what style, what texture was being used? That we simply do not know, unfortunately yes. There's still a big difference
1: between the early Baroque music as you have characterized it here and late Baroque music. My question is, would you say it's primarily a gradual development from early to late or are there some big jumps that occur in the transition?
0: I would say it is um, fairly gradual although we do have great innovators like Johann Sebastian Bach who really carry uh, the art form, to a whole new level, um, and especially from a harmonic point of view. Uh, and I should maybe mention to you that harmony, functional harmony as we know it today, what every music student still studies in music theory classes, is a development that came about around 1720. And it was actually uh, Jean-Baptiste Rameau, French composer of the Baroque in 1722, who published a treatise on harmony. Uh, And Bach was very much part of that tradition. And he, you know, when you think about Bach's music, it's very rich from a harmonic point of view as well. At the same time, when you listen to his vocal music, his cantatas, his uh, uh, passions, you know, whatever, you do still hear this monotic texture. I mean, that remains very much constant uh, from the early Baroque onward. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on the secularization of the topics of the music that relates to the
1: form of the music?
0: Yes, Uh, the secularization of music. It's it's a big topic, obviously, and um, there is kind of a misconception that most Renaissance music was sacred, and we get to the Baroque, and most music is secular. And I think that's a... Gross kind of uh, simplification of the complexity of this issue. Um, I would say that it's probably safe to say that in the Renaissance, um, most of the music that was written, that was published, that was committed to paper or or parchment, was sacred music. The secular tradition was a, um, to a very large extent, still a improvisatory um unwritten oral tradition so it 's a question of perception more than anything else um, however, you know with that um, that little bit of um, Uh, justification there I think you could maybe make the claim that secular music in the brook does become more central and that is perhaps because uh, there was uh, there were more court festivals there were um, you know just the patronage system of music develops to the extent that there are more occasions for the production and the performance of secular music for music outside of the church does that answer your question (laughs)
1: I mean, this, uh, this line, second line, second and third line. Yeah. The sun uh, holds the universe and, throw, and that could have gotten you burned at the stake, you know, 100 years <laughs> earlier.
0: Oh, yeah. Right. And there he's referring to his father, the the, you know, god Apollo. So, you know, it's a Greek myth that is being reinterpreted. So I think, you know, Monteverdi might have been safe to say that because, you know, he's kind of referring to myth- myth- uh, mythological um, elements and all of that. But, yes? Uh, the first piece that you pay- played, the palaphonic, you went from a minor key to major and back to minor. Everything else that you have played, I believe, has been in minor key. Is there something about that that's typical of the Baroque? I'm thinking of some later Baroque that's major, but I don't know what that's. What was the first piece I played? You mean the Renaissance piece? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, here's another shift that (laughs) takes place right around 1600. Another great moment of change, if you will, around 1600. Uh, and Monteverdi is very much responsible for this shift as well. We are shifting from a modal system to a tonal system. What does that mean? I don't want to be too technical here. But essentially, music until approximately 1600 had been primarily based on the church modes, whether or not it was sacred or secular. Uh, so, for example, the Dorian mode, which is. You go to the piano, start on D, play all the white keys, that's Dorian. And each mode is a different scale, essentially. Uh, now, if you were to pick the Ionian mode, which that piece may have been in, I haven't checked, the Ionian mode is essentially RC major. So it's very possible we'd have to check the score that La Rue in that piece writes in I- Ionian which to our ears sounds major. But there is no concept yet of major and minor. That concept starts around 1600 with Monteverdi and his contemporaries who start to refer to you know, these kind, this kind of duality of uh, what they call durus and mollis. They don't call it major or minor but it's essentially what it is yes Derek
1: patrons are asking for pieces to be performed in our palaces it built opera house
0: the well there's public houses versus uh, private uh, well I should have mentioned perhaps that Laphail is not performed in an opera house it's performed in a living room of the Duke of Mantua and one of the great um the lights of my musical careers came in the mid 90s when I was in Mantua and they were actually uh performing a recreation of the first performance of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo from 1607 in the room where we think L'Orfeo had originally been performed. It was one of those life for me changing kind of experiences. Uh but it was great to see what that was like. It's you know it was a room about you know from that wall from this wall, you know, very small room. Uh, 100 uh, members uh, in the audience, that's it. Um, so you think, all of this great transition and, and change and great music for 100 members of the audience. Um, now, the first public opera house was Venice, 1637, the Teatro San Cassiano. That was the first public opera house ever. And that, too, had a huge impact on music because all of a sudden opera became something for everyone, not just for the elite, not just for the few who were invited by the Duke or the Marquis, but something that anyone with you know, not too much money would be able to, to go and listen to and watch.
1: Is anything known of medieval and Renaissance folk music?
0: Yes, we know a lot about medieval and Renaissance folk music. Uh, there isn't, again, too much of a written tradition, but we do have some elements of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Musicologists draw a connection between the so-called Renaissance individualism <laughs> and the focus on the the
0: single voice. Yes. Yeah, there's been a lot of, um, it's always fun to put the music in the context of what is happening historically, what is happening in the other arts, and, uh, some of you know that we are right now offering a team-taught seminar, the Weiss Seminar, uh, that is really an exploration of music and the arts and literature in this period. And it's been really fun to kind of draw some of these connections. But, yes, theres there's been discussion about individualism, the emergence of the artist as a figure, uh, and the development of music as well, certainly.
1: I'd like to ask Marty and Megan to please come up, and then you'll... Be able to thank
0: oh. them all. <laughs> Happy thank and thanking Dr. Tony, Maria, Megan for a wonderful performance. Oh, oh, thank you so much. much.